You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Stephen McGregor, who is the author of an absolutely splendid book, co-author, called The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway. Stephen was... Like all true patriots, a member of the United States Army, thank you, Stephen, for your service. I was going through basic training 36 years ago right now in the cold at Fort Knox. Hopefully you made a better choice. Uh, my basic my basic was in Colorado Springs So, because uh, um, I started off at the Air Force Academy. And then uh, you know, it depends on how you look at it. I, <laughs> I, I suppose I went down. Uh, you know, in some some respects, into the into the infantry, but um, but you know, we ascend as well in the infantry. I you know, I was I was uh, did airborne school and and air assault school, and so you know, you get you get a bit of altitude when you uh, when you have to jump out of a good airplane and uh, or a helicopter or whichever it is. You know, I mean, um, so yeah, so I, I kind of got both worlds, and it was great. <clears throat> well, Stephen was deployed to the Sunni Triangle of Death, Evan. Infantry officer in the 101st Airborne Division. Mr. McGregor, please don't hold it against me that when I was in the Army, I had a television show. While in the military, he earned the Combat Infantryman's Badge and the Purple Heart. Thank you so very much for your service. After his military service, he moved to England and completed a postgraduate studies in history at the University of Cambridge. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Robert. It's great to be here. So the Battle of Midway, we're going to talk a lot about that. That's basically the topic of discussion today. And as we were talking before we started recording, I guess we could talk about this. I'll say it the same way. I was I was hunkishly arrogant before I started to read your book because I've read so much about Midway. I really didn't think I would learn anything else. And after about six pages, I realized I was wrong. What makes the Battle of Midway so compelling and appreciative to you? 
Oh, great question. Yeah, it, it, you're right. A lot of people have written about this battle, some many great historians, um, and it's a very important battle. So it deserves uh, a lot of attention. I think for me, and I, and I guess in general, um, it's, it's probably uh, one of the greatest naval battles in American history. So I think on that, on that basis, it's important to, to study and to understand what took place. Uh, I think then you could also say it's important because it's a great way into the to learning about the Pacific War and the Second World War more generally. Uh, the Pacific was a was a, in, was a theater. It was very large theater, three times larger than the European theater. Uh, it was vast, um, very very a lot of complicated, um, uh, complex scenarios there, and so it's often difficult when you start learning about. Uh, a, a war, you you need some way to kind of to get get a handle on things and to orient yourself. And I think starting with the Battle of Midway, which is such a critical battle uh, from the U.S. and the Japanese uh, perspective, which then has other effects on the European theater. That's that's another good reason. But I I think for me personally, um, it was just it was really striking when I first started learning about the battle, the kind of resonances. I mean, you know, I just reckon you know I never served in the Navy. I was in the Army, like I said. Um, but the, there is this kind of similarity. You do recognize what it's like. Um, to, these experiences. One of the one of the main characters in our book, Dusty Kleiss, He's a very important figure in the battle, and I just really identified with letters he was writing home to his fiance and um, or his yeah his his fiance's girlfriend. Really, they uh, they kind of had this difficult relationship and. I mean, it was, it was bizarre, actually, the, just the similarity um, that you get. You know, it's almost like war hasn't changed in some ways. And, and um, so that was that was, I think, for me personally, why I really um, this story just it um, it was something I, I, I really enjoyed telling. And I thought it needed to be told. My son, Joshua, did two tours as an 11 Bravo in Afghanistan. And the letters that he wrote to me, you know, were obviously uh, a little bit different than the ones you're describing, but I got the sense that people riding from combat zones tried to give the the recipient of their letter or letters a taste of what's happening, but not really the entire meal. Is that fair to say? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's totally true. And I think as well, and this comes out with uh, with Dusty Kleiss and his writing. I think when you're writing home, what you want is you you want courage. You're looking for virtue. You're looking for this sense that what you're doing um, has meaning, and in you you need this other world. You need home to exist, um, and the, because that's 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 almost the the whole reason that you left home in the first place is because you you know you you think that what you're doing is going to Mm. Um, it's going to somehow preserve it. And so I think your son, um, you know, that, that will be in what he's trying to say. And I mean, and you get a sense of that as well. Like when you're reading what he's saying to you and, and you know, that he's kind of reaching out to, to this, uh, to this, it's almost that what the thing, it's almost as though, as though the, what you're doing at home is just as important, uh, if not more important than what, um, than what he's doing. And, and so, and you get that, like when, in Kleiss, when he's writing back to Jean, and he's talking to her because uh, we we have a letter that he actually wrote to her on the eve of battle, 
um, which we talk about in the book and and what he asks her for and what he says to her before he uh, before he flies. So he's riding to her on the third of June, nineteen forty two, the night before he uh, he he goes into the Battle of Midway, and so it's just a matter of hours. I mean, he's just about to go to sleep, and and he writes to her. So it's it's like you know that is. I mean, that is great history. It's a great story. Mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think those kind of letters, they are, they, they are really important. Tell us a little bit, please, about the pre-herbal. I want to talk about, I want to set the stage for the battle uh, in two particular ways. One is to tell us a little bit about the pre-Pearl Harbor American military buildup and how important that was to to midway because I, I if i remember correctly in your book and you also you and uh, uh professor sims your co-author brendan sims wrote an article in time magazine that basically said nothing that happened after pearl harbor in terms of men or material made a difference in the sense that everything that led up to the victory in the battle of midway happened before the war quote-unquote started on december 7th Yes, that's correct. So what the U.S. brings to bear on the Japanese in the Battle of Midway, the, the key the key components of the U.S. victory in terms of the men and the machinery that are put into use in the battle, those all of those things are developed prior to Pearl Harbor. They're, they're developed and they're put into use prior to Pearl Harbor. Um, and, and I'll say more about that in a minute. But it's it's all it's important also to to so if you read Paul Kennedy's um, recent book on on uh, on on the Second World War and he talks about the navies specifically and he's and he's he talks about how in 1943 that's really when uh, the U.S. Um, the scale of American um, the the ships uh, the, it's really the 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 amount of things that America was producing and putting into the water uh, it was just orders of magnitude greater. Than what the Axis powers um, had available. So really, in 1943, the quantity uh, shifts dramatically in favor of the U.S. But again, as 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 you point out, and as uh, as we as we as we describe in the book for the Battle of Midway, it's not a victory that's won by quantity so much as quality. It's really uh, the quality of the U.S. equipment and the quality of the U.S. pilots. In in one particular aircraft that allows the U.S. to win the Battle of Midway. Well, let me ask you a let me ask you a follow up to that. Um, one of my favorite quotes about the United States is from Sir Edward Gray, who lives right where you're living, there yeah. in England, and he he compared the United States, and I don't know if it's quoted in your book or in in in. Professor Sims's book on Hitler, which we hope to talk to him about. And I've read this quote many times, and it's my all-time favorite. Edward Gray, the foreign minister of Great Britain, likened the United States to a gigantic boiler and said there is no limit. Once lit, there is no limit to the amount of heat it can produce. Would you say that specifically in the, in the war in the Pacific, this becomes true when the United States just starts to produce things in quantities that you just can't imagine. Absolutely, yes. So, uh, so yeah, I was I was born and raised in Florida. 
but about 14 years ago, moved uh, when I got out of the army, came back from Iraq, got out of the army is when um, I moved to moved to England and married um, married my my girlfriend um, who's an English woman. So that's how I ended up over here. Um, but uh, yeah, America, it is, it is, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's continental. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, this, 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 this colossus and and it takes a while for it to kind of get into gear. But once it does, um, it's very effective at, or, it, you know, it builds up a lot of momentum. But as I said, that's, that's much truer that, that, and, and, and that really does bear, uh, it's an important fact to bear in mind. Uh, you know, especially when you think about just even the geography, Japan, it's an island nation similar to the to the United Kingdom. It's a, a union of, of island nations. Uh, uh, but the United States is a continent. Uh, so much larger um, just in terms of its size and, and, uh, and, and then its manufacturing power and all of its resources, um, which the Japanese are aware of. This is one of the reasons why uh, they think they need a short war if they're going to win against the United States. Um, but again, with the Battle of Midway, one of the things that we point out in the book, which is a somewhat counterintuitive, is that the the technology and also the uh, the pilots and the sailors um, who allow the United States to win um, against the Japanese in this one battle, in this particular instance, they are uh, the result of targeted small scale development. So it's not the the, you know, by, by the end of the war, for instance, by the end of the war, the United States has built almost 6,000 uh, SBD Douglas um, Dauntless dive bombers, which is this very important uh, plane, which we describe a lot in the book. We go into detail in the book. It's the most detail on um, on this plane and they, in any book uh, about the Battle of Midway. And so by the end of the war, they've built almost 6,000 of them. But, but by the time of the Battle of Midway, it's in the hundreds. You know, so that and that's all that's required because in the day on the day of battle, uh, there's only something like uh, 39 planes that dive on the Japanese <laughs> carriers. So it's just 39 of that 39. Um, th- th- that those are enough to to make a difference, and obviously not all of them hit. It's only um, something like eight eight of them actually hit the um, hit the Japanese. So in that one in that one morning in that in in that 5 minute period so so you know in that at that point you know you're looking at eight planes which actually make a difference and and bring about a, a an important you know this important victory so setting the stage prior to pearl harbor the american government president franklin roosevelt the people so on and so forth decide look there's got to be we know what's coming perhaps eventually but there's already war in europe in september of 39 and maybe even a little bit before if you want to talk about the appeasement period so the united states industry and the american government say we have to spend money we have to build up our defenses that's pre-pearl harbor so you set the stage for that very well now set the stage for the Battle of Midway in the sense of what happens between December 7th, 41 and June 42. It's amazing that it's only seven months between this amazing and you know significant Japanese victory. And then seven months later, you could argue it's over. I mean, the fighting's not over, but any chance the Japanese had is gone in seven months. Or am I overstating it? 
Well, um, I guess you can kind of, ha- you can, yes and no. So it's an overstatement in the sense that, um, as Richard Frank um, and some others point out, Guadalcanal is, it's, that's the meat grinder where the war of the Pacific, it becomes a battle of attrition and an enormous amount of life is lost on both sides. And uh, the the United States really proves that it's willing to go toe to toe um, to take ground um, in this island hopping campaign and their assault on uh, on the Japanese. So really, America's proving that they're willing to to, to bleed and die uh, to win this war um, to an extent that j- the Japanese really can't can't match. Um, so that would say so. The, so you you know you could argue that Guadalcanal, which takes place later in '42, is or well, it lasts for months, but that's really when it begins. That that is a much more critical phase of the war in the Pacific. However, Guadalcanal, the United States could have never orchestrated that assault without the victory at Midway. And so, really, the victory at Midway, the Battle of Midway in June, in uh, on the fourth of June, 1942, as you say, a matter of months after Pearl Harbor. Uh, that battle is what proves the war will not be a short war uh, because uh, four of, of, of the Japanese of the six Japanese fleet carriers are destroyed uh, in the battle. Um, there three of them are, are, are mortally wounded in just a five minute period um, of the battle. So a very short period of time. You have uh, the the heart torn out of the of the Imperial Japanese Navy, and so this is what proves that, that the war will be a long war, and that is a war the, that the Japanese really can't win. They cannot win a long war against a continental opponent. Yeah, I mean they they are a great navy, and that's another um, sort of point to bear in mind when you're thinking about the the you know the the background to the battle is that both sides um, have have strong navies in a sense. But the Japanese are really much more battle-hardened and, and tested. They've been fighting um, against the Chinese uh, since 1931. So their pilots are much more experienced than the Americans. And, and they have great equipment. They have great ships. They have great planes. Um, so they are, they are a, very, um, a very capable um, naval force. The Japanese fleet was supposed to be limited. And I'm going to see if I get my date right. Was it 1922? Is that the the Washington Naval Treaty, where am I correct? Stop me as soon as I say something that's wrong. That's limited the ratio, limited fleets in the United States and Great Britain are supposed to have the two biggest fleets. And then it's like France and Japan and Italy. So in other words, Japan was supposed to have a, a smaller fleet, but they they were unhappy with how they were treated as part of that treaty and decided to do their own thing. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, so coming out of the Great War, there was an attempt. Uh, there was a there was a belief that through diplomacy we could do away with war. Uh, you had the Kellogg Bryan Pact. You had this. You had this kind of um, this this sense that through you know this is this is part of the League of Nations is part of this. So the U.S. never ends up joining. It's it's Wilson's idea, and it's it's part of this this line of thinking that through through diplomacy and engagement that we can we can get rid of the need for. Um, the loss of so much life and um and for and for things and for things like like the horrors of 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 the trenches 
Um, the Washington Naval Treaty in 1921-22, when they get together to decide this, it's essentially a way to uh, have an agreement between the major powers that they will, and some of the lesser powers, that they will uh, restrict the growth of their navies um, as a way to prevent uh, an arms race. Um, and this, the, the issue with this is, you know, you have some countries, they, they lie about the, because the, the way it's designed, it's meant to be this ratio of tonnages. And so you have countries lying about the, the size of their ships. Um, you have them developing ships. It's not, it's not necessarily unlike the way some things are going on now in, in, in the Pacific as we speak, because uh, you, the number of ships that China has available for its amphibious assaults um, for, for an amphibious assault, should it should one take place, uh, it's it's hard to calculate because they they could they could potentially be using ships that are civilian uh, ships um, for a military assault. You know they can reconfigure them in a short period of time, so they could say on paper, well, we only have this many, but actually, you know, the real number is much greater. And you had similar things going on in the 1920s after this agreement, and certainly moving into the 1930s when the navies were pushing at the edges of, uh, of what was allowed. And then they just started openly breaking them. The Japanese were openly breaking their treaty obligations. Um, and they were in, in, in the, by the mid 1930s. And so, uh, the, the agreement, you could argue that it works, um, because it restricts the development of some things, but in other ways you could say it just, um, it, it was, it was kind of a hand wave. Um, so that is, that is part of, um, uh, the kind of deep background to the battle. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is author Stephen McGregor, who, along with Brendan Sims, wrote a terrific, terrific book, The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway. I'll give you, I have several very kind review quotes about your book, Stephen. I will read one. The Silver Waterfall is a story of authentic American characters, settings, issues, and heroism that will stay with readers long after they put the book down. And that is from General David Petraeus. Yeah, that was kind of, that was much nicer than what he said to me when I met him in Iraq, actually. I was just getting ready to ask you that. <laughs> I'm not David sure. David McGregor? I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to, it's like, it's like when you talk to royalty, you don't, you don't tell people what, what was said. And I, I'm not going to quote, I'm not going to quote what he told me. He's, it was hilarious, actually. It was great. Um, I mean, he was, he is kind of one of these, um, uh, they told us before he came, um, you know, you have to be careful because he would challenge people to push up competitions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, random Joes, he would just say, you know, like, like, like 11 Bravos, like your son, you know, he was like that. He was kind of, um, uh, yeah, he, he would just kind of go off. If he saw something interesting, he would go over there and look at it and talk to anyone. And so, I mean, in a way, I mean, that's what great leaders do. They, they put people, um, they, they, they investigate everything, you know, they're per permanently curious and, um yeah so that was very kind of him <clears throat> the this like it's not a metaphor but the theme the string that that really holds your book together is the douglas dauntless dive bomber you chose one particular plane a y and b it's a unique approach and this is kind of a 
a knucklehead question, so forgive me, but why do you think choosing the plane as the foundation of your book works? Yeah, you, I, you're right. You wouldn't necessarily think that a plane is the key to this naval battle, um, but it is. And actually, that's one of the reasons why it's so important, um, because this is a huge change. You know, if you think about someone like Chester Nimitz, uh, he becomes uh, the, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, and um, he, 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 he receives this job after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Husband Kim, husband Kimmel, who's the outgoing commander, you know, he's sort of um, cast aside because of because of the attack, because the U.S. is surprised. And um, uh, Nimitz comes in; he arrives in in Hawaii. He arrives at Pearl Harbor on December um, uh, on on Christmas Day, the morning of Christmas Day uh, d- of December 1941. And if you think about Nimitz, he's born in 1885. He enters Annapolis in 1901. The Wright brothers don't fly until 1903. So he's a midshipman when this new technology suddenly appears. And it's not until after the Great War that you then have the advent of uh, uh, of aircraft carriers. And there's a huge debate. What is, you know, what difference is a plane going to make at sea? You know, for, for uh, the, the, the established culture in uh, navies throughout the world is that the battleship is the ship that wins uh, that wins wars and it's and that is what's called your capital ship. Mm-hmm. Well, Nimitz Nimitz decides uh, in 1922 when he's at Naval War College he will use the carrier, the aircraft carrier, as his capital ship, and that will be the ship that he forms the rest of his uh, fleet around uh, to protect um, the carrier. And so that's why the plane, you know, when, once he once he puts this this uh, changed formation into practice in 1923, uh, is when he's EXO Battle Fleet. This is when you start to see air power um, making a huge difference at sea. And Midway, the Battle of Midway, is where this this the 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 uh, the, the the capability of air power and in in, our, in the U.S. case, the Douglas Dauntless. It's just uh, it's unmistakable. That is really the, the 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 plane that allows. It's the technology that allows the U.S. to win that the battle. So a dive bomber dives and bombs. What else does it do? And why is diving and bombing so critically important? Not just for this battle, but for others. It it is a simple skill. You're right, and. Uh, it's 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 I, I you have a huge contrast to the way uh, a lot of warfare takes place now with this fire and forget technology and GPS guided munitions and all this um, with heads up displays and uh, you know satellites and these totally different kind of warfare um, because in in dive bombing the you the pilot becomes the the, the weapon really you are flying your bomb at the target and the longer you uh, hold that attitude where you're you're descending straight down towards the target um if you go from something like you go from about um 18,000 feet down to sea level in two minutes the longer you hold that position the more guaranteed you are that your bomb will will go where you want it to um, because it, you know your your target's going to be moving uh, at sea. Often your target is moving, 
And so you have to send your uh, send your ordinance where you think uh, the the target will be once you release it. And yeah, the the this is a this is a kind of technology. Other you know the Japanese are are, are good at they have a, a capable dive bomber. Um, uh, nickname it's the H E D three A one nickname Val. Uh, it's similar to the American dive bomber. It's not it's it has some it has some noticeable differences. It's a much lighter plane. One of the reasons why the American plane is so good, the Dauntless is so effective, is because it's, it was a very heavy plane. It was very rugged. Um, so it was about 10,400 pounds compared to the, the Japanese plane, which was 8,000 pounds. Um, the Japanese plane is more agile and it can, it can climb faster. But the American plane is able to withstand greater stress on recovery because really when the plane comes down uh, toward the target, it, uh, it then has to recover. And uh, you, you can only dive steep and recover steep if you have a strong plane. Otherwise, the wings will just come off. So uh, what, what the Americans are able to do, one, one uh, engineer in particular, Ed Heinemann, who we, we talk about a lot in the book, he designs an incredibly strong plane. The, the, the Dauntless is very strong. It's able to withstand it, a, a, an enormous amount of pressure on recovery. And what this means is that the Americans can bring 1,000-pound bombs. They can dive with 1,000-pound bombs, and the Japanese only have 550-pound bombs on their on the valve. So, the the strength of American equipment allows them to 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 bring greater ordnance um, into the battle. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by. Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is author Stephen McGregor. He, along with Brendan Sims, another terrific historian, wrote, the Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway. Before we get back to the battle as we approach it, please give me your Mount Rushmore of the four most important naval battles in history. <laughs> Gosh, well, I mean, you could um, <laughs> you could go a long way back um, for that. Definitely Battle of Jutland would be on that list. Um, so that's a... That's a battle between. Um, uh, it mainly takes place between battleships and the uh, and the Great War, the First World War, and and something something like that. You know, you're. Um, it's important because uh, this is all part of the uh, the kind of development of this of this culture, um, in you know in Europe and in the U.S. where the battleship is essential. The battleship is um, how you win. Um, uh, how you win wars, and that's also the battle that that Chester Nimitz, in his um, uh, he, that he studies in, in detail, he writes a dissertation on this battle. So you would think that actually, when you have battles like this, where um, the uh, where the where the battleship is is crucial, you would think that uh, that it, it makes it all the more unlikely that Nimitz is able to seize on air power um, and the aircraft carrier as um, as as kind of the technology. Uh, that would allow, uh, that would allow for such great, uh, for uh, you know, that would be so transformative. Um, other the battleships I mean, also how you projected your 
your diplomatic and political power. That's how you were counted. You know, when you read, whether it's Massey's book, Dreadnought, about the naval war between the, the Brits and the Germans prior to World War One, that's how they... You know, that's how they counted their belts, right? Like we're powerful because we have X number of dreadnoughts. And and that's a hard thing. You know, the the aphorism that you're always fighting the last war, that's what it seems to me that Nimitz broke out of so well. Yes, and he he also managed to change the entire culture around him. Uh, because you have, you know, so his his opposite number in in the Imperial Japanese Navy, um, Yamamoto. He he seems to be aware that that air power is important, but he's not able to make the entire Japanese Navy come along with him in that in that realization. Whereas Nimitz does. Nimitz Nimitz is able to, as I say, he's able to change the way uh, that um, the the American task force where the ships are arranged um, for battle. He's able to make that change take root and take hold. And so I think that's where you see a contrast because great leaders don't just see uh, that that things are going to change in the future. They can actually, they can change the entire culture to recognize this. You know, they don't just have this idea to themselves. They can, they can, they can persuade others um, of this, but yeah, I mean, I suppose to go back to your earlier question about important battles. I mean, I'd also list, um, if you think about the battle of Tsushima Bay that takes place in 1905, I'm just thinking of other important, battle specifically to understand Midway. Um, battle of Tsushima Bay is important because it's a battle between Russia and Japan. Um, and one of the people who participates in the battle is Yamamoto, Isoroku Yamamoto. Um, he enters the Japanese Navy at the same time as Nimitz. They're born almost the same time. I think Yamamoto is born in 1804, or I'm sorry, 1884, and Nimitz is 1885. But they enter the, their respective navies the same year in 1901. When Yamamoto graduates, he then um, he ends up on a on a surface ship um, uh, in the Battle of Tsushima Bay, and he's wounded in this battle when a shell explodes next to him. He has something like two hundred fragments sent up um, on onto his back into into his back, and so he he, he he's a battle hardened sailor. He's in a, he's he he and he's uh, you know so he he is a very capable um, leader in the Japanese in the Japanese Navy. And that battle again, Battle of Tsushima Bay, it's another one of these instances where the battleship decides the outcome of the contest. And it, it seems to have a kind of um, echo in Midway because the Japanese fleet departs Japan on the anniversary of, uh, of that battle. And so it's, 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 it's as if you're seeing the way that the battleship and the big gun culture of the battleship, uh, it's, it's just ingrained in uh, the Japanese fleet um, where as the Americans have have figured out air power um, is the key. So yeah, I, perhaps Battle of Tsushima Bay, Pearl Harbor itself, Battle of Midway, and then we could go in for something like um, what takes place at Guadalcanal. <laughs> and it's your four battles. I mean, we're not talking about Coral Sea. We're not talking about Salamis. Tricky. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I would do that. Obviously, I'm thinking, well, do I do we go to, to the to, to to the ancients and all this? I mean, yeah, you know, because we didn't because the Greeks survived and the Persians didn't come in. I mean, you could definitely you could definitely do this, and uh, I probably John Keegan is probably. You know, like that's that would be more of his his approach. But it, you know, if we just stay with our World War II theme, that that will work. One of the one of the coolest things to read about in the Pacific Theater during World War II is the Doolittle Raid. Mm -hmm. They take off from the Hornet shortly after Pearl Harbor. 
James Doodle, who ends up being awarded the Medal of Honor, and they do this kind of perfunctory, you know, hardly frightening raid over Tokyo that has this enormous emotional impact. Please talk a little bit about the Doolittle raid and how that led directly, if you think it did, to the Battle of Midway. In other words, the sense that the Japanese had some unfinished business at Pearl Harbor because the aircraft carriers were not there. Yes. Yeah, so uh, that raid is really something. Um, and, you know, Brendan and I, by my co-author, Brendan and I, um, uh, we actually got to meet uh, uh, a sailor who was on the Hornet uh, for the Doolittle raid, Richard Nowatsky. Um, so we, so we wrote this, we started writing this book right before the pandemic and we knew we needed to go to San Diego because they have this, um, they have this museum, this museum there, which has all these papers from the, uh, the engineer who designed Douglas Dauntless, all of his private, all of his private papers are there, his correspondence and all of this. And, uh, so we, we knew we need to go and visit this museum. And so we go out there in January of, t- of 2020 and my wife was very kind. She's like, yeah, you know, I'll watch the kids. You can go and uh, I won't hold it against you, you know, forever. Um, so we, we got to the museum, we saw the paperwork and I found out there was uh, this this um, this veteran um, who was living um, close by in Rosemont. So we drove out there and um uh, it was amazing. I mean, he he told us how uh, it was great just to, to see him and see he had all these books on Midway himself, and to hear his stories and and he told us when they because they it was it was kept secret the mission was kept secret when they when they decided because Pearl Harbor takes place. This is one another one of the interesting things about the American response to Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor takes place uh, in December forty one, and it's a huge psychological impact. Um, and you know the sense that that they're that America is now at war with this incredible foe, and America goes on the offensive. Now, part of this is because of Nimitz. It's because when Nimitz takes the job, when he's um, given given responsibility for the Pacific Fleet, he wants to fight. He he goes in this island hopping camp at the, or this, um, this 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 campaign of island raids. It's really what they are, and. Um, island hopping is later in the war, but this these island raids uh, where he he's he's attacking different positions uh, in the Pacific, and part of this is the Doolittle raid itself, which is you could think of it as a raid on 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 Tokyo. And what they do is they they send these these uh, long range bombers, these these army bombers off the Hornet, and they just fly a one way uh, flight over Japan, drop their ordnance, and then into China where they hopefully will escape. And they keep this this mission secret. Um, and uh, so the sailors are Rich Nowatsky told us when they when they departed, and it's announced on the loudspeaker what they're up to uh, because the guys have no idea. Mm. And he just said this enormous cheer went up on the ship because they realized they're they're gonna go fight back. Um, so yeah, it was a very important um, it was a very important uh, attack, the do little raid because partly because, uh, it it caused the Japanese to think uh, that they needed to bring the U.S. fleet out as quickly as possible and uh, f- in, in some way find a decisive victory. They wanted to create a decisive fight uh, with the U.S. Navy rather than, uh, you know, sorry, and hold certain territory or 
move move west. You know, they had a lot of options, strategic options. But after the Doolittle raid, and they they feel like Tokyo has been attacked, uh, and Japan is viewed as sacred sacred ground to the Japanese, they want a decisive victory with the U.S. Navy to end the war as quickly as possible. There is a. Let me ask you another. You you talked about it just a second, but maybe tease this out a little bit. What was the Japanese plan and objective? And how did the Americans come to know so much about both? Well, they never quite settle on um, one strategy. This is one reason why uh, in, in, in the kind of postmortem of the war, why some scholars say Japan did not win is because they didn't necessarily pick one strategy and stick to it. But by the time um, the midway operation takes place, what they're what they're hoping for is a, is is some what they would like to do is attack Midway Island, um, which it's midway between um, between the, the the west between California and Japan. They're going to attack Midway Island, and by doing so, they'll they'll capture the island itself, and they'll draw out the U.S. fleet to try to recapture. The island, and when that happens, the Japanese fleet will ambush them. Uh, so the Japanese see it as, or they're hoping that it will be, uh, it will be the beginning of an ambush. And by by doing this, they'll not only destroy the U.S. fleet, but they'll they'll control Midway, which is the gateway to Hawaii, and that is the gateway to the continental U.S. So they see this as kind of key terrain um, for for attacking the U.S. later down the road. But primarily, it's about destroying, drawing out the U.S. fleet so they can destroy it in an ambush. There is an aphorism, which I I thought I had correct, and I looked it up, and I was 99% right. I had the author wrong. And the aphorism is, every battle is won before it's ever fought. I thought it was Confucius, and it's Sun Tzu. Is Midway an example of this? Uh, uh, you're getting to you're getting to the heart of of uh, midway scholarship. Um, <laughs> over, uh, That's what we do uh, here uh, on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Yeah. We try to sound smart. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is kind of if you think about the way the first, some of the first, uh, probably one of the first major books on the battles written by uh, one of the participants, a Japanese sailor or, or a aviator, um, uh, Mitsuo Fushida, he publishes a book about the battle in, in the in the 50s, 1950s. And he argues that it's hubris, that the Japanese um, are overconfident going into the war. And so he would agree. He would say that the battle um, is, in, in his sense, it's it's almost an inversion of your quote, because in his, in, in his way of thinking, the battle is lost before it's ever begun. Um, he doesn't necessarily see it as a battle the Americans win so much as one that the Japanese lose. And that's really the, the kind of keystone of, of a view that the outcome of the battle is determined by luck. And what and Brendan and I push back on in that view in the, in our book, because, you know, obviously luck, luck plays a role on, or I guess you can call it, you could call it divine providence or, or uh, fortune um, it plays a role in all our lives. There's times when things happen to us and we can't necessarily explain why, why they, they turned out the way they did. 
Um, and then definitely in war, you have that all the time. There's, there's things that happen and you can't, you can't explain how, why one person lived and another person didn't. Um, but that doesn't mean that skill doesn't play a role. And I think when you look at the U.S. victory in the battle and the, the reasons why the U.S. won, skill is essential. And so that's something that we, I, I think with regard to the quote, you know, the battles won before it begins. Well, skill doesn't, just because you have skill doesn't mean that you can just coast through. You still have to fight. And in the case of Midway, these, you know, guys like Dusty Kleist still had to wake up uh, at 3 a.m. Um, on the day of battle, get into their flight suit, have their last breakfast. Some of them, for some of whom it was their last breakfast, get on, get in their planes, uh, take off, fly the 200, some two, almost, it was just under 200 miles to the, to the Japanese fleet, find the fleet because they're just flying across open sea and then attack. They had to actually dive on the plane and put their munitions where they were, where they wanted them to go. So, you know, in that sense, absolutely not. The battle is not one, uh, you know, as you're, as you're sailing, uh, you know, to attack the enemy, you still have to go through all that and take those risks and, uh, you know, and perform your job, do your job well. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Stephen McGregor. He, along with Brendan Sims, wrote a phenomenal book called The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway. I will read another review. Quote, it's been written about many times before, but the story of the 1942 Battle of Midway has never been described for the reader in this special way. A fine blend of narrative and analysis. It's a treat. So says probably the greatest living uh, diplomatic and naval historian, and that's Paul Kennedy from Yale University. Uh, I wrote down five things, and you why don't you, if you want, ascribe a percentage to them that explains the American victory or the Japanese loss. Ingenuity, strategy, skill, luck, errors. Okay, so then L has to, has to add up to 100 right uh yes sir <laughs> um okay can you give them to me again ingenuity skill In, luck, ingenuity errors. ingenuity strategy skill luck errors um yeah i suppose um well it's interesting because skill so strategy, strategy and skill, you know, they, they overlap mm -hmm. and, and ingenuity in a way, um, you know, because skill, what, what skill, skill is so comprehensive, you know, it includes uh, so many things. I mean, you think if you think of them, um, you know, for instance, so, so as I mentioned, you know, part of, part of the reason why Nimitz was a great, was an effective leader in this and, and, in the role that he, um, was put into as, as commander in chief, of the Pacific fleet. Part of the reason he was effective is because he went on the offense and is that ingenuity. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I'm sort of dodging your question. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, For example, uh, were the, was just the skill of our dive bomber pilots at a higher level than the skill of the Japanese 
dive bomber pilots? Did we get lucky in the sense that we broke their code? And when they said that AF's desalinization plant wasn't working, I mean, that's ingenuity. It's luck. My point is, is that, you know, when you read Miracle at Midway by Gordon Prong and mm. And in your theory in the book, which you talked about a few minutes ago, that this wasn't just we happened to get lucky and roll a seven. It's mm. much more complicated to that. And that's what I thought that was so refreshing about your book is it, it said, yeah, well, luck's a part of any war. It's part of any facet of life. But this was a victory that was well planned, well fought and well constructed in terms of the equipment that was used. Yes, and I, I guess, um, I mean, you, you, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. Were our pilots better than Japanese? Um, because, in some ways, they weren't. Uh, in some, or you know, um, because they had been fighting in combat for longer. Now, uh, the Americans had had some combat experience. So because Nimitz goes on the offense and because of the island raids and in, in, uh, late, it's sort of the very last day of January. And then there's a couple in February and one in March because of these island raids, you, the, the guy, Dusty Kleiss and the other pilots who dive um, on the Japanese fleet in the Battle of Midway, they've had experience um, in combat. So they're not doing this for the first time, but the Japanese are certainly much more experienced. Um, so in that respect, uh, they weren't necessarily better, but they were very, very capable. Um, because someone like Dusty Kleiss, he gets to the Enterprise Air Group in May of 1941, uh, so before Pearl Harbor. So he's been with the group. He's been flying his plane, you know, before Pearl Harbor takes place, before the war begins. So what he does in war, he is done in peacetime. So it's a peacetime Navy that is there for the Battle of Midway. Um, but I, I suppose for the percentages, it's it's just tough because, you know, um, when you think of so if, I'll give you another example. Um, when the American planes, uh, when they when they take off to attack the Japanese fleet in the morning of the 4th of June, uh, you have three American carriers. Well, one one carry the Hornet. The planes just go completely to the west and they overshoot the Japanese fleet so they're essentially it's as if they weren't even in the battle mm. and we're still historians are still confused as to why they why they did this and is that is that is that luck is that it's difficult is that an error it's definitely an error but but what's the reason for this error it, it it's 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 hard to say and then and then if you then look at the planes who actually do find the japanese um the 27 of them are diving on the same carrier it's a norm. They get confused um, when the targets are assigned. And so this huge amount of the, the large, um, the majority of the planes start diving on the same carrier. Well, one pilot, uh, one pilot recognizes this um, and says, Dick Best, and he, and he show, signals to his wingman to follow him and he chooses another, another carrier. So you have 27 planes diving on the Kaga and only three planes die for the Akagi. Well, it's Dick Best's split-second decision when he saw the, the group going for the one target. It was his split-second decision to say, no, no, follow me. I'm going to go to this other one. That means that America got one hit on 
on the Akagi and that one hit sank the whole carrier. So, you know, that decision, you know, that is, because is that, is that one decision? Is that skill? <laughs> is that skill or is that luck? Cause you know, he's, you know, he's a, he was a great pilot. He was very capable. Um, so when he says, Oh no, no, I'm going to take this chance, you know, follow me, follow me. Um, you know, in a way, in a way that's, uh, that's luck. Um, in a way it's ingenuity, you know, so he's kind of, it's being a good pilot. I don't know. Pilots are, you know, they, they have this mystical approach to their, <laughs> their trade, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can uh, split hairs with them. I mean, my brother is um, an airline pilot. I get it. Completely. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me ask a quick, maybe a corollary to that because I thought it was interesting in how much you, you and, and professor Sims, included first person accounts mm-hmm. and now my uncle my father's uncle uh, drove a higgins boat in eight major landings in the pacific including okinawa wow and you didn't really talk to him about it a little bit at all when you were a kid but as you got older he would he's since deceased but you could ask him questions and it was interesting to hear a lot of his comments because you didn't read them in books. Now you do. How important. One thing that he said was they can write what I'm trying to get this right. They can write all the books they want, make all the movies they want, but they can't replicate the smell. Hmm. Uh, so how important is is it to you as an author, as an historian to get a chance, as you were mentioning a few minutes ago, to sit down with someone who is there or chronicle someone's participation through letters and make it a part of the overall narrative. It's, it's very important. I mean, you're right. I mean, the smell, um, you know, cause you think, you think about someone like Nimitz when he steps off the plane on Christmas morning of 1941, you had five American battleships at the bottom of the Harbor. Um, that would have smelled, he would have smelled the oil, the smoke, uh, the, the, the the rotting the 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 burned the, the flesh been burning I mean because it had been weeks now since the seventh of December, um, so yeah it would have I mean that it does it has an impact I mean I think uh, part of the issue is you know when guys talk about what they did in the past you never remember what your kind of major life events completely accurately I mean. Uh, Dusty Kleist says this in his uh, his autobiography that he published in 2016. So he's born in 1916, and he and he it, his his autobiography is published in 2016, the year he dies. So he's 100 when he writes it. And he says himself, he says, "You should always be wary of of, of soldiers' stories because whatever they tell you, it, it's going to make them look good. Um, it can often make them look good, and and there is, you know, you do have a bit of this, but." Um, and probably some of the best um, sources in this regard are, are diaries because, you know, they're written as, as events unfold. So Cleo, Cleo Dobson, he was a, he was a, a dauntless pilot uh, on the Enterprise. Um, and for the Battle of Midway, he was actually a landing signals operator. So he was the guy on the, on the deck sort of sing, sing to the guys, you know, take off or, or land. And, you know, you're correct. Your, your angle of approach is, is good for landing, you know, so he was controlling things on the deck. Um, so he's not in the battle as a as a pilot, but but he's involved in the crew, and he keeps a diary which was published by his family. You can buy it on Amazon, um, 
and and I spoke I spoke with uh, with members of his family, and um, he says in his diary, you know, he his kind of comments on on life aboard ship and mm-hmm. um, and and his and and their response to to the battle. He writes it was a turning point. He says the battle of this day will be a turning point in the war. And he says this, uh, you know, it's like, it's like the day after the battle, it's like in the 5th of June or 6th of June, he's saying this. And yeah, his, his, he talks about the fights he would get in with the guys and sort of what he thought. And so you, and, and, and what, and what he liked about it. So he, you get a bit more of the light and dark um, reading these contemporary sources and it does make a difference. Um, the, those perspectives make a huge difference. Japanese ever have a chance to achieve victory as they would have defined it both not necessarily in the battle but in the war as a whole Yamamoto is famous Admiral Yamamoto for saying we've wakened a sleeping giant and sleeping giant and and a lot of the things that you quote a lot of the people you quote realize what the Japanese realize what they're up against and so in in the great folly of of military errors throughout the century japan's decision to go to war against the united states just seems to be in the top rank of those as a historian could you construct a way for the japanese to quote unquote win yeah i think i mean it's interesting because uh, um some of some of the some of the harshest judgments on on some of the japanese officers by historians is kind of aimed at Admiral Nagumo, who's he he's sort of the one on the Japanese carriers. He's he's on the Akagi and he's he's kind of executing the plan that Yamamoto has constructed. And and the tendency is to think of him as as too conservative, as overly conservative, hesitant, um, not aggressive enough. But I think, you know, as I was as we were kind of sort of going over as we studied everything for, for the book. You know, it's it's important to remember the Japanese very successful navy. You know, they've been uh, they've been fighting uh, in the Pacific since 1931 when they invade Manchuria, and they've been doing very well. And and then uh, you know they've been taking a lot of territory, winning a lot of battles, and Pearl Harbor is seen. Uh, you know, it could it could have been they could have they could have accomplished more. Uh, than they did at Pearl Harbor, but it was still this astonishing, um, a successful strike. And in a lot of ways, the reason why they didn't accomplish more was just because the, the U.S. carriers happened to be uh, out um, bringing supplies to uh, to some of the island outposts. So that wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, it could have gone a different way. And if they had hit the carriers, then that would have had a, the attack on Pearl Harbor would have had a much bigger impact. So I think what I, what I'm saying is I just think the Japanese right to be confident. Um, so when Mitsuo Fushida says they were they had they were hubristic and overconfident, I'm thinking, man, but they were actually really good. I mean, well, they were winning they, all over the Pacific in the, yeah. in the Philippines and in, uh, the Dutch islands, Indonesia, and and the list goes on and on. They were a string of unbroken victories for what two or three months. Yes, exactly. So this is where I think you can understand why attacking the U.S. seems like, well, you know, what we can do this. We can we can bring it. We can bring them out. We can have 
we can uh, so we can lure them into a decisive battle. Um, we can win that, and then we'll have a short war, sue for peace, and and you know we'll establish uh, an empire uh, for ourselves here in the Pacific. So I, I think there's a way in which I think strategically, if they had just picked one strategy and said, uh, I mean, it, it, attacking Midway is difficult because even if they had captured it. Uh, logistically, it would have been a nightmare for them to support it. So I probably wouldn't have gone so far east if I was them. I would have either gone south or west. Um, and so there were certainly, but but the Axis powers themselves had a bit of a problem because they never really cooperated very well. Uh, they were very wary of one another. The Germans didn't really trust the Japanese and vice versa. And obviously, then you have the Russians who change sides. Um, <laughs> so they're not necessarily a great ally. Um, whereas the whereas like the US and the UK, they cooperate re, you know, relatively uh, or comparatively much better. I mean, we're sharing all kinds of you know, radar. We get the US gets radar from the British. So um, there's so the Axis powers were almost kind of flawed. Um, from the start in that respect. Um, but certainly I think if the Japanese had picked, if they had gone south or west, it might have it might have turned out better for them um, than, than, than pushing east or looking for the decisive victory. We here in Indianapolis have a special affinity for Midway due to the critical leadership role of Admiral Raymond Spruance, a graduate of our own Short Ridge High School. And he also had the doomed USS Indianapolis as his flagship. Please talk just a minute about Admiral Spruance's conduct and leadership and decision-making. He he was not a carrier commander, but uh, Admiral Halsey, Bull Halsey, I think had shingles and could not participate. And he was selected, Spruance was selected to take his place. Uh, it's in in the original movie Midway, which I think maybe seventy six. Uh, he's played by uh, Glenn Ford. It's, it's a terrific movie. I like the first version of Midway better than the second version, maybe just because of the stars who are in it. Mm. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about how Spruance did and and how new that role was for him. Yeah, so um, we were, we were saying we mentioned this before the show because uh, it's so funny. You have all these guys from the Midwest uh, end up end up in the Navy and Chester Nimitz is, is somewhat similar. And he's from Fredericksville, Texas and uh, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Texas. And, uh, and then Dusty Kleiss is from Coffeeville, Kansas. So, you know, you, you got this Midwest uh, kind of contingent of uh, going strong um, in, in the Navy. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know if they're trying to escape or what, but, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> Spruance, um, uh, yeah, who knows, but um <laughs> Bruins, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Sam Morrison, the historian, um, who who called him the electric brain because he was very sort of cool and collected uh, aboard ship and, and making decisions. And, you know, each of the officers, they would kind of establish a different personality. And uh, like Halsey, as you mentioned, is much more gregarious, louder, um, uh, sort of physical presence um, than Spruance was. And uh, and Spruance has tapped, uh, you know, to become part of this uh, part of the battle, pretty much at the last minute, and um, and I, I I suppose it's a testimony to 
the professionalism um, of, of, of the naval officers that they're able to kind of work, that they're still able to work together um, under those um, conditions. And also that uh, Nimitz comes up with a plan that's, that, that they're able to implement that, you know, that's, that he can communicate to them and that makes sense to them. Nimitz stays in Hawaii. He stays at Pearl Harbor uh, when uh, he, out his uh, the U.S. carriers to 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 uh, on um, for for battle uh, to go and prepare their ambush for the Japanese fleet, whereas Yamamoto tra- travels with um, his ships. So um, yeah, I think um, I think Spruance definitely was um, a, a great example of that. Of sort of you know, at the last minute, mm-hmm. you're told this is something you need to do. You need to be ready for this, and and he's ready. Leaving aside the post-nuclear age, is it fair to describe the United States Navy in the Pacific theater as the single greatest fighting force in the history of the world? I suppose I suppose uh, it would it would depend on uh, if on not what greatest. Sort of- if not greatest, how about powerful? Yeah, well, they definitely. <clears throat> I think. Um, I, I mean, amphibious warfare, island warfare, uh, and, and especially as we talked about in the beginning, we talked about how how large the Pacific theater is. I mean, it was incredibly. It's just huge, and so it's a logistical problem. Um, even just moving around, then they had problems of dividing up who was responsible for what, you know, and you had someone like MacArthur involved and he was, I mean, you know, you say, so some of these personalities, like he's, he's incredibly, and, and, and actually Craig Simmons goes into this in his, his recent um, biography on Nimitz, he talks about sort of how, how, how problematic that could have been. And actually in Simmons's view, and I think there's really something to this, Nimitz was humble enough to be able to work with someone like MacArthur and even someone like King, Ernest King, who is um, uh, Nimitz's superior back in Washington, even he had a rough um, sort of personality. So I think uh, there was, you know, they were definitely able to work together well. Um, I and 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 in a difficult environment, um, you know, this 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 enormous uh, this enormous theater, and then the the the, the the job they had was 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 an incredibly it was grisly it was violent it was tough you know amphibious warfare taking taking these islands taking taking ground carrier warfare this is i mean it's brutal um so for them to be able to do all that with the professionalism that they had i mean yeah it's incredibly impressive um and yeah, it was it was and 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 definitely the navy has to be able to do everything you know, so they have to have uh, Marines to do things on the ground to be infantrymen. They have to have pilots. They have to have sailors. So there is, um, a, you know, a huge range of things they're doing. Um, and in that sense, I suppose they're almost like an army task force where they have kind of everything integrated into um, into the into the unit. It's not just you know some infantry guys. It's kind of they they kind of have people to do every job and and you know so they construct airfields. They construct um you know barracks and places for people to live in you know entire cities so i mean it's it's uh it's it's incredibly it's very impressive what what's accomplished and um so yeah it is it's, it's remarkable we've reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests 
Steve McGregor, are you ready? I'm ready. This is this is the equi- this is the uh, intellectual equivalent of jump school. So I know you can do it. <laughs> hey, what was, just keep my feet and knees together. I'm all set. Yeah. <laughs> what was your first job? Uh, my first job uh, in it was in Florida, where I grew up. Um, uh, it was commercial landscaping, so I was basically mowing lawns. Um, and, uh, yeah, we woke up very early so that it wouldn't get too hot, you know, cause you basically finished by kind of early afternoon. And, um, it was very good, good preparation for the infantry. I tell you. <laughs> similar, similar kind of work. Um, question, yeah. question number two, what was your first concert? First concert? I can't, I can't. I don't think I can actually remember. I did see, I would say recently, I just <laughs> you don't saw, remember. You don't remember the concert? You don't remember you were there? <laughs> well, I, I, I was trying to think. I was like, what, what would the concert be? I could, I can think of uh, my mic. So recently I just saw um, Peter Andrzejewski. He's a Polish um, uh, piano, a pianist. And uh, he just played some fugues. I did a performance of, uh, of several Bach fugues mm-hmm. here in Cambridge uh, which was incredible. He played, uh, and he played his final piece was a sonata, um, uh, Beethoven sonata in A flat. Which um, I mean, I like classical music quite a bit, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was just um, yeah. I'm still thinking about that that performance. It was two months ago, and it was it was very good. It was very good. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I would say. Um, this this writer I really love Milan Kundera. He was from uh, he's from Eastern Europe, and uh, he wrote a, a, a collection of short stories. It's called Laughable Loves, and I mean it's very irreverent. Um, it's very funny, uh, but I think he dealt a lot with totalitarianism in his day with with uh, the Soviets, and I feel like this theme of totalitarianism it's and very relevant for us now in the West. And so I think his work has just really spoken to me um, uh, in, in sort of, re- and just in, over the last couple of years. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? <laughs> for this. Um, so I'm the book I'm working on right now is about, um, uh, it's, it's about this, U.S. foreign policy during during uh, the American Civil War, when France invades Mexico, mm-hmm. as our war is taking place, France invades Mexico, and I think that uh, our Secretary of State then, William Seward, I think that when he was in his twenties, he met uh, Louis Napoleon, the man who becomes Napoleon the Third, the the the, the, the second emperor of mm-hmm. uh, of uh, he's leader of the Second French Empire, and. I think they actually meet in New York in uh, the spring of 1837 at this at the house of Chancellor Kent. So I would, I, but I'm, I'm not. I still haven't. I'm not 100 certain of this yet. So I would love to be at that house in the spring if they do meet, and then I'm able to see, like, you know, what is it they're talking about? What's their conversation like? Do they enjoy meeting each other? I mean, because you know, let's go on to become incredibly influential uh, leaders. I read it. I've read a biography of Seward. It's been a few years ago, and I've read three or four books on Louis Louis Napoleon, which I always Napoleon the Third. It's always interesting. 
in his procurement of women that they were all told they were all told you may kiss the emperor any place upon his body except the mouth that's so <laughs> well, french <laughs> yeah napoleon is a yeah he was a, a bit of a rake he was a bit of a rake he was he was um maybe he would probably he might actually fit too well in our uh, you know he, he would have a tiktok or something <laughs> but what what he did for paris is can never be repaid the, the brilliance yeah. of rebuilding paris last question if you could have dinner with anyone living today living today two hours off the record just to chat whom would you choose i just read this interview with um simon mann i'd never heard of him before he he went to eaton and he joined the scott the, uh, the scott guards um it's a it's a regiment here in, in the british army uh, then, then the SAS, and then he set up. He he left the the military, and set up a private military contracting company, and was involved in coups all over Africa. So he fought in Angola and Sierra Leone, and um, ended up in prison at one point because he he was part of a coup that didn't work out. I mean, the guy was fascinating. Such an interesting, yeah, as like a soldier and adventurer. Um, I would love to meet him. He just sounded like. You know, because he had an interesting perspective on history and on politics, and just so, and he clearly had been through a lot in his life. Um, so Simon Mann, I think I would say, um, yeah, kind of, uh, yeah, sort of, he's almost a man from another age. It seems. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by. Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today has been Stephen McGregor. He is a member of the 101st Airborne Division. He was awarded a Purple Heart. And after his military service, he moved to England and completed his postgraduate studies in history at the University of Cambridge. And along with co-author Brendan Sims wrote The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the War in the Pacific at Midway. Stephen, thank you for your service. It was obviously incredibly brave. Thank you for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. And we'd love to have you back on someday. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.